Kimberly Wells is a global trailblazer in advertising and brand marketing. She's worked with Australia's largest brands, including ANZ, Medibank, Qantas, Optus, Australia Post, and the federal government. And she's led ad agency TBWA toward a values-based culture to embed more purpose in both her staff and the clients she works with. A champion for LGBTIQ rights, women's financial inequality and minority groups, Kimberly was invited by the United Nations to share her positive mission on a global stage. So in this conversation, we explore who is Brand Kimberly, what really drives her and why her early childhood experience of discrimination set a framework for fighting for injustice, the unseen and the unheard. A force for good in business and a crusader for creativity, Kimberly is now grappling with the loneliness of leadership, how to care for self when you've spent a lifetime helping others, and how to put her own needs back on the map. Here's our chat with Kimberly. Kimberly, you are a trailblazer in advertising and brand marketing. You've worked with some of Australia's largest brands, including ANZ, Medibank, Origin, Qantas, Optus, the list goes on. Who is brand Kimberly? Wow, that's a big question and a great question. I think if I probably try and put the last 40 plus years into perspective, uh, I'm someone who really values integrity and trust are critically important to me. And if I think back on my life, there's been some pretty significant moments that have really shaped that. So uh, when I was young, my parents separated when I was 18 months old. Um, So within that, I think probably a bit of a fighting spirit was born. At about 10, my dad's uh, stepwife had a horse riding accident and um, she was paralysed as a result. So I was probably exposed to some discrimination pretty early on and felt the effects of that as a small child, but also, um, you know, was was exposed to the point where my sister and I, there's only 18 months difference between her and I, so these two little blonde children running in and out of the spinal ward on the weekends and, and popping lollies into all of the paraplegics' mouths because they couldn't um, feed themselves. So I think in that environment, probably without knowing it at the time, started to really shape my desire to be helpful and to, you know, to make sure that everyone could be seen and everyone had an equal opportunity in some respects. Then going through rebellion years at school and being told I couldn't really fueled a motivation to demonstrate that I could. And then landing in advertising, again, an environment where sort of going back 20-odd years ago was not particularly Democratic? Yeah, that's probably a good word. And in particular, the skill set that I landed with, which was much more in the digital and the direct marketing space, um, it wasn't really welcomed into the centre of an organisation. And so, again, being on the outskirts, fighting, fighting for um, not only the representation for women, but also the representation for a different skill set and to demonstrate that it could be valuable um, and to try and help people see what the opportunities were that other thinking could could bring to a creative conversation. Why was the brand or advertising industry the industry you chose to take your energy into um, or your skills? I, I actually think it chose me. I, I didn't have burning ambition to get into it. I actually was far more interested to be a criminal lawyer. I think I've always been really fascinated by extreme behaviour. 
And when I was unsuccessful with, with, with that, um, I happened to go into a job interview one day in an advertising agency. The woman really liked my name who interviewed me. I reminded her of some sort of sitcom or something. And, uh, yeah, it all started there. And when you talk about discrimination, you're talking about what it's like to experience discrimination watching someone else, so sort of th- that osmosis, I guess, through your stepmother and then in an industry yourself. Have you had personal experiences where you felt that you were on the outer? I certainly I certainly have um, throughout my career. You know, I think being underestimated is probably the most, it's, it's often the most obvious uh, response that people, you know, had as I was going up through my career. But equally, I think I found a way to flip it. So it became the most empowering component as well. There's nothing better than walking into a boardroom and being underestimated and walking out with jaws dropped on the table that you've just helped to, you know, solve a large problem or um, demonstrate the intellect that you can bring to the conversation. Do you think you've had to push harder than, than most in order to demonstrate your worth or capability? I've been really fortunate to have great mentors in my career and ironically the best mentors I've had have have been some great men. The female bosses that I had as I was growing up probably gave me more lessons on what not to do Hmm. rather than what I should do and I think um, often it was this sense of control that they wanted to maintain so they I think could stand out in a, in a minority representation, they wanted to ensure that they continued to stand out rather than be challenged by another female. So is the what not to do, pull your head in? Is, is yeah, it, yeah, yeah, don't pull your head in. Keep fighting for what it is that you believe in. Um, you know, send the elevator back. I think we talk about that quite often and I think that women in so many respects have we've been our worst enemies for, for growth, particularly in a corporate environment and on one hand, it's a lack of uh, representation and I think a lot of women early on, certainly as I had started to go through the ranks, the female role, mo- role models that I was seeing were gendered as female but behaved as male and that was not something. I never wanted to have to give up any of what it was that I believed in um, in order to represent a business because I didn't think I had to. And, you know, it's interesting now having gone through well, we're still going through the, the COVID period, but I think there's never been a more important time for empathetic leadership. And I think that that's something that women just naturally gravitate towards as a result of all of our maternalistic instincts um, than men. Well, Jacinda Ardern's a great example of that. That's soft and strong. You don't need to, I mean, going to use a really crass term, but you don't need to grow balls to rise to the top. Whereas I think we have seen that a lot, as you say, in the corporate sector, where you just have to get really, really tough and throw out the thing that makes you empathetic, feminine and, and you know, collaborative. Gentle power is a term that mm. I've heard used, which I absolutely love. Um, you know, don't forget all of those things that make you feminine but at the same time make sure that nobody feels that they can walk all over you just Mm. because you are feminine. You shared a beautiful story with me before Kimberly um, when we were in the depths of lockdown and as the CEO of TBWA trying to work out how you could connect and check in with your employees and you told me that you made the decision that you would go and knock on each one of their doors as a surprise and check in with them. That's some kind of leadership and that is empathy to me. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I um I mean we were we were just it was that sort of two week break between we thought we were coming out and then we were going back in. And um, you know, everyone talks about 
it's lonely at the top. And I, I really had never felt it. But this year, I certainly felt the loneliness a lot, a lot more. And I think that's because by, by osmosis, I am um, motivated by the team when I, when I get to thrive off their creative energy, when I'm seeing them. Um, but because a lot of the work that I do isn't necessarily in the organised team groups, there were so many people within the agency that I just wasn't touching and I wasn't seeing and um, and I was really feeling for. And so I was trying to work out what was the best way to let them know that. And I decided the best way is to look them in the eye and tell them. So I got the staff list. We've got 130 staff at the agency in Melbourne and I got the staff list and it, it took me about two hours to rearrange where everyone lived into geographic kind of cohorts so I'd be able to get around. And I told my executive team that I was doing it. They cautioned me to say, I really think you should call these people before you just turn up because it's a little bit intimidating to have the CEO knocking on your door. You're probably only there for one reason. Um, and my response to that was, they're going to realise very, very quickly that I am only there to see and make sure that they're okay because, of course, the hypothesis was people would think I was going there to give them some very bad news that they they were finishing up with us. And I walked into uh, one of our staff members. How She wasn't home at the time and her partner let me into their apartment. He was telling me that he had unfortunately been made redundant um, and I did say to him, look, I just think you need to be aware that when when she comes home, she's probably going to be a little bit surprised that I'm sitting in the lounge room. And he said, oh, well, what, what, why would that be? You are from TBWA, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, I am, but I'm the CEO and she may think I'm here for bad reasons. And the expression on his face just immediately changed that I had to make a joke and say, don't worry, you haven't let the devil in the door. Like I'm, actually, I'm genuinely here to make sure she's okay. And the depth of conversation that came from those visits the honesty that came out and really importantly as leaders the ability to genuinely see what our people were going through and the environments that they were working in i mean if we had if we had planned for this environment we would have had ergonomic assessments and all sorts of things done to ensure people's health and safety in their working environment was as good as it could be and we didn't get that opportunity. We just sent everyone in. And so from, from people working in a one-bedroom flat where the second screen is their TV to others that are privileged enough to have a completely separate room, the working conditions of our people are so different. And so personally, I took so much more out of that experience than they probably took. And it helped me to really think again about what do we need to do to water and feed our people as best as we possibly can right yeah. now? Do you think you'd got out of touch with that prior to COVID, if COVID was a catalyst? I don't think I'd gotten out of touch with it. I think that things had just changed in terms of what they really needed. The agency has a really fixed focus. Actually, probably about three years ago, we developed a tool called Pulse, which is like a, a weekly survey that goes home to all of our staff. It's a it's an SMS message that gets sent on a Friday. It asks them one question, have you had a good week or have you had a bad week? It's anonymous. You can fill in your comments. And then the results are shared with all staff on a Monday meeting in terms of the cumulative percentage. So did 80% of staff have a good week and 20% had a shit week? 
And then um, the comments are also shared. So it is totally transparent and importantly it keeps the exec level's eye on what are the areas of the agency that need to be addressed day in, day out. So everything from training to having the right beers in the fridge. Mm. You've done so much under under your leadership and at TBWA you've also focused on LGBTIQ and been a champion for change for women's financial equality, working with other minority groups. How do you bring your employees along on the journey with you? Uh, so we have a belief that our job is to set all of our people up as best as we can for their next job. And for the next job, whether that's with TBWA or a- anywhere. Correct. Yeah. And I don't think we can do that without consideration for what humanity actually looks like and without an acknowledgement of particularly some of the underrepresented areas of the community. We have a purpose in the agency, which is to use our creativity to move the world forward. And so that, by default, starts to shape the type of talent that we attract, the type of clients that we attract, and obviously the type of work that we do. I'm very, very fortunate that about 20 years ago, I met a former guest of yours, Jane Tucson from Igniting Change. You know, really through the opportunities that I've had with her to have my own eyes opened, Um, have I felt a deep sense of responsibility to also open others. And so creating these opportunities for our staff to go along and um, meet people on various projects and really feel some of the issues firsthand, I have a hope that that will start to infuse into the communications landscape, which, as I say to the team, you can think about it as an advertising or a creative business or you can think about it as one of the most influential um, industries in the world because we write we write the words and we we take the pictures and so well, you, they say those who tell the stories rule the world and you're the storytellers can you give us an example of where you have taken people out to you know be immersed in another situation to get another perspective yeah so we um, we actually co-authored with Jane the book small small ways to change the world uh, small ways to shape the world I should say it was critically important for me that anyone who was involved in that project actually felt the issues themselves firsthand. So we had team members go into Port Phillip um, and spend time with the young inmates in there on the youth suicide prevention program. Um, We had people go down into Mornington. We've walked the streets in Fitzroy with people experiencing homelessness. We've sent groups into Trikinder in Paran and one of our staff actually, she had heard firsthand when she was down there about the inability for some of these young kids to get swimming lessons so took it on herself to go and contact the private school that her daughter was at and have the the swimming pool opened up on a weekend for the kids. I have to say a shout out to Lauriston for um, being involved in that one because that's that's the school that I'm involved in too and I thought that was that was a group of women who had never learned to swim their children have never learned to swim and they never have access to the resources to do that and it's such a simple solution, yeah, isn't it, to offer up a, a school swimming pool? Share to share, just not being the, used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And then, um, I mean, also, I think I've probably, 
sometimes I walk into these as a bit of a challenge, which which speaks to my own personality, I guess, of just I, th- I believe you can achieve anything if you put your effort into it. And so we had just opened our office in Adelaide and I was flying back to Melbourne with um, our chief creative officer, Paul, and I said to him, so what's next? And he said, I don't know. Well, And I said, well, we need a big plan. And he said, well, let's um, do something with the United Nations. And I said, okay. Actually, he said UNICEF first. And I said, why don't we go to the top? Why don't we do something with the United Nations? And he said, okay. He said, do you know anyone at the United Nations? I said, no, I don't, but I'm sure we can work that out. So that weekend I went home, did a whole bunch of homework to try and work out how on earth we were going to get to the United Nations. Quite fortuitously, a couple of months later, I was in New York with Google and Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General, was speaking at the event. I made an introduction. Two months after that, I was at another event where the global head of the Strategy Hub for the Sustainable Development Goals was speaking. Um, he saw my passion for this type of space and then reached out to the agency in about August last year to see if we could um, help bring some awareness to the Sustainable Development Goals in the lead up to the General Assembly in New York for the United Nations. And 30 days later, we created a flotilla with 17 boats on the water that um, greeted Greta Thunberg as she sailed into New York Harbour. And um, it became the top media moment the Sustainable Development Goals have ever had. We had the Secretary General of the UN acknowledge it in his opening statements around sustainability. So I'm covered in in goosebumps hearing you say that. My body just got covered in goosebumps physically. And I wonder there'll be people listening, maybe other leaders, thinking, yeah, but I'm not Kimberly and I don't know anyone at the UN and I work in a sector that pushes back. What's your messaging for them? How can we bring others, not just within TBWA, not just within your industry, but in the world along on this journey? I think find the thing you're not prepared to walk past and change it. Do, do something about it. I often think, and I have done this myself, I have underestimated my influence. And I don't say that in an arrogant way or with any sense of ego. But I think we don't actually know what individually we're capable of until we ask. You know, another example on New Year's Day this year, I don't know if you all recall, it was a beautiful, bright, sunny day. We had incredible blue skies, um, but the fires were obviously burning out of control. And I remember looking up at the sky thinking, how is it that we can have such beauty and serenity when there are literally people screaming and running for their lives right now? This is unacceptable. So I messaged all of the CMOs that I know um, and asked them what they were going to do about it. I put a post up on my LinkedIn profiles asking the community as well, what are you going to do about it? I contacted my uncle. It was a personal interest. I have family in Gippsland. And uh, he put me in touch with the president of the Gippsland Emergency Relief Fund. They said they needed money. I asked them how much. He said probably about $6 million on the basis of the devastation that we're seeing. And I said to him, okay, well, just leave it with me and I'll see what we might be able to do. I can't, I can't write a check, but we might be able to use communications to help, you know, help you with some fundraising. So 24 hours later, we, I contacted a, a very good friend of mine from a media perspective and just said to him, I need your help. Right? We have to get funds raised. We have to support the um, community of East Gippsland. Can you help? I will create the asset. The agency will create the assets and 
we're going to need somewhere to put them. So he was phenomenal. He jumped onto it. He contacted all of the media properties. We had TV, radio, print, out of home, digital. I had Facebook unlocking different aspects with the US so we could make sure that the fundraising connection was tight. And, you know, to kind of cut a long story short, we ended up raising over $10 million for the fund. And that all started because two people in that instance cared enough. I made the first phone call to the to the president to find out what they needed and then with the support of Mark Code um, from a media perspective, he was able to leverage his contacts to, to get the type of change that's required. So no one is a superhuman, you know, and I think it's important that we all remember we're made of the same stuff. It's the flesh, bone and blood that runs through all mm-hmm. of us and when you think about what you would hope for, when someone else is going to lift you up when you're down, then that's incredibly motivating because when you have the opportunity to do it yourself, you always should. Yeah. I think Anita Roddick says, um, the founder of The Body Shop, I I think it was her quote that said, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't slept with a mosquito, (laughs) Uh, which is kind of a silly way of saying really what you're saying. Every single one of us Mm. has the capacity to impact the lives of others in meaningful ways. Mm. Except not everyone can do, has done what you've done. Um, you obviously made an incredible impact in so many different areas and through a, an idea or a catalyst to get a group of people together to change the world or change an outcome. What actually drives you deeply if you had to distill that part of you? I think it's taken me a long time to work that out, but I think it's probably what we spoke about at the beginning is, you know, why, why when we interview leaders don't we ask them for the adversity that they've faced mm. in their life? Because I think increasingly there's more awareness that some of the best leaders have gone through some form of struggle, yet it's not something that we, that we talk about. And I think it's probably through some of the struggles that I've, I've had in my own life that has just spurred me, unbeknownst to me as I've been growing up. But, you know, I think you sort of reach a point where first of all, generosity becomes much more important. You, you kind of, I think we all flip from accumulation mode of I've got, to, I've got to acquire, I've got to get the house, I've got to get the husband, I've got to get the kids, I've got to get this, that and the other thing into I've got to give back, I've got to give back, I've got to give back. I think probably I've always had in me just some really principle, some strong principles around I always have to work hard for the things that I want, which was absolutely instilled by my mother um, and growing up in an all-female household, single parent, you know, she was always working and I just knew if I if I wanted to have the things I wanted to have in life, I had to work hard. I think never, never judging someone as a result of what they look like, how they sound, what they wear, in part because of the judgments I had experienced myself, in part because of some of the situations that I'd been in, whether it was through the exposure with my stepmother when I was very young or, you know, even like we've all got horror ex-boyfriend stories who maybe <laughs> suppressed the voice we really wanted to get out or there's mm. been someone who's more controlling in your life and and just, you know, refusing to ever be silenced as a result after that and and seeing the way that certain people had behaved and just deciding that it was just unacceptable and someone has to be the change. So it has to come from within, but it doesn't make you a special human. 
How do you share with your own children? You've got two boys, 10 and 14, some of the values and beliefs and dreams that you've just shared with us. Well, we talk about it quite often and whenever there is an opportunity for them to to see different aspects of life, um, I'm always the first to, to do that. My husband is Mauritian, so they have the benefit of a holiday in Mauritius unlike the postcard. So it's not the big resort with the 5,000 swimming pools. Um, We go into towns where he's had um, family members or, uh, you know, that they have – they call them servants, but um, maids or housekeepers is a big part of the culture over there and they live in shanty towns. So, you know, taking the children into those environments is really, really important to me and ensuring that they don't grow up with this sense of privilege. It's the greatest fear I have for young people. Mm -hmm. I think we're cocooning them from adversity and I worry about the type of adults they're going to grow into and and yet they're struggling and in more pain than than generations before them in so many ways at least through mental health metrics Mm. Mm. how do you check your privilege I mean obviously you do through the work you do but where you're working broadly with a lot of brands is there some complexity in that where you've got you're so values led and there's such a strong set of principles and ethics in there how do you balance that with the work that you sometimes have to do we have tried wherever we can to to bring our clients along on that journey because, and increasingly they want it. The area where it is often the most compromised is in the health and beauty sector because it still is trading on perfection. Um, And it was really interesting. I was very proud of one of our staff members. We had been working for a fitness brand. A request had come in for some retouching of, of one of the lead fitness models and she was postpartum. And she was incredible. If you didn't know she was postpartum, you wouldn't know she was postpartum. Um, But a request came in from someone in their team, in the client team, who was a man, to have some retouching done and make her look less postpartum. And this young retoucher came up to my office and said, what do I do here? You tell us that we are responsible for the way that women see themselves If I say no to the retouching, what's the cost of that going to be? And he said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to use my skill in that way. I don't feel like it's the right thing to do. And this was a young man. This was a young man. Mm. I said to him, well, we are going to have a conversation with the client because actually what that brand relies on is real women Mm. and the honesty and the transparency and it projects an image that it supports and celebrates all of our imperfections or perfections but yes imperfections and so if they're about to compromise that then what does that say about them as a brand so that's what we did we went back we had that conversation and the retouching was never done Jamila Jamil has been a huge proponent for, for that because there's so much well, pursuit of perfection and and fakery and it does a lot of women a disservice and, um, yeah, it's complex, uh, that area where we want everything to be, especially in the brand world, everything to be polished and you're selling a dream, you're selling an aspiration. You too could look like this, you know, dance like this, whatever those things are. And so are we really willing to step, is the ordinary person really willing to step back and see the ordinariness reflected 
I think we are. I think increasingly consumers are demanding it. I mean, you look at the success of Dove with that whole Real Beauty campaign. It's a campaign that I I think I will go to my grave jealous of. I would have loved to have been involved in that. I think it it it's just so wonderful on so many levels. We don't need the image of a, you know, size six, six foot tall blonde beauty for us to decide what is beautiful for ourselves. You know, all of us know when we look and feel our best and often it's got nothing to do with the makeup we've got on. It's, you know, it's got to do with how, how well we're eating, how, how we're taking care of ourselves physically. How connected we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to do with so much more than that. And I think I love that consumers are rising up against it, but I also, at times it reminds me when we do show the rawness and the realness through communication, how far we still have to come. So, you know, an example of that is um, a number of years ago now we ran a brand campaign for Medibank um, and in the campaign it was a a montage of a a whole range of different slice-of-life scenarios of what modern Australia looks like today. So we had... um, two dads and their child in the morning. We had, uh, you know, uh, mixed race couples. We had grandparents looking after children. We had a Down syndrome boy playing with his brother in the backyard. And we had a woman breastfeeding her child. Now, which of those scenarios, so you've got LGBTI, you've got disability, you've got you know, mixed race, which of those do you think? Breastfeeding. Yeah. So it was one of the most complained about ads of that year and it was because we showed the woman breastfeeding and the child was attached so there was no boob it was a child and a mother doing something completely natural Mm. and so my response to that and my response to that to the agency is I'm so damn proud of you guys that we can we can use our craft to bring light on these sorts of issues and we'll keep going mm. until it's not an issue. Mm. Well, tell real stories. Yeah. This is how we are, who we are. This is what being human is. And I think, like, look at the rise of social media and the dysmorph- body dysmorphia, all the issues that we see with the next gen where there's still a perpetuation of those myths and that perfection and how do we move back, you know, toward the middle so people give themselves permission to actually be themselves flawed and all. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's really inspiring to to have this conversation. And Mads, you work with young women all the time, um, thinking about if and and my youngest is about to finish school and looking at career choices. And I think a lot of people think, oh, advertising, you know, sort of slick and a bit meaningless, and what's the point? And as you've so beautifully articulated, Kimberly, today, it, it's the one of the most powerful vehicles, and it's the choice of the humans behind it as to how they use. Um, their force for good or evil. And I think that's a really important message for young people from a career perspective that no industry is wrong or right. It's the humans behind it that make the choices to impact the lives of others. I'm going to be reinforcing that, you know, I'm just thinking about my tonight, kids. Tonight. Around the, around tonight. the dinner table. <laughs> yeah. Well, so where we think about that then, and I think it's it's a great point you make. So you have been considered like in the top 10 most powerful women in media in Australia and uh, and I know, you know, you're involved with Google around the role of creativity and technology. Have you seen The Social Dilemma, the movie? I have. I have. Right. So we're sort of 
if we switch gears slightly into that territory where, and um, for, for listeners, The Social Dilemma, well worth watching, and it's about um, the power of technology giants using algorithms to change the way, our worldview really, the way content surfaces. And what do you think about the unintended consequence of technology or, or brand marketing where sometimes things run out of control? Yeah, it's a real dilemma. <laughs> I'm fortunate Tristan Harris is actually a, a friend of mine and um, he wears this dilemma as heavy on his back in real life as he does in the in the uh, documentary. Look, so much of it comes down to it's the same as life. It's making the right choices and finding what the right boundaries are for you to put in place. From a brand perspective, it is something I have spoken to some of our clients about um, and it is something that when I first met Tristan, I did go back and challenge Google as to who is the design ethicist that they have on staff. Um, and so after a flurry of phone calls, they put me in touch with someone in the US. You mean, can I clarify, the human designer as opposed to who's designing the AI or the algorithms? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Like, is there a role? Who's making the decisions that the code that's being written is actually the right thing to do on behalf mm. of humans? Brands certainly have a role in this because that's the currency of a brand as well. We're all in the fight for attention. The tipping point for me is the algorithms are geared specifically to continue to take you deeper and deeper and deeper into the funnel to the point where your attention in your real life is completely compromised by the attention in your screen and so, you know, I think from a brand perspective, we've got a role to play when we're designing episodic content or, you know, longer kind of format and how far should that information journey continue and where should it take a natural resting point? And it, and it goes against, I mean, the whole idea is you keep consumers sticky, you know, into the funnel, isn't it? And so how do you balance that? Well, the difference for us, I guess, is from a consumer perspective, we're ultimately looking for a lead. So there is a point of conversion, whereas for the Googles and the Facebooks, they don't have a point of conversion. It's never enough. No, They've because never, yeah. they are entirely trading on time spent. And so the more time spent, the better. Or the attention economy and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So we, we, have a, we have a natural endpoint. Yes. We plot the funnel, we draw people in through content in different formats and ultimately are looking for them to take a very um, – clear action that is likely to either result in a sale or require us to send some additional information through or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting distinction. It, there's an exponentialism around the amount that mm. that Google said you want to take from you of your time. It's your time really, isn't it? And as you say, we're not limitless vessels. So if all your time is spent there, it can't be spent with the humans around you mm. or doing other things. Yeah, and look, I think we've all been there. We've all fallen into mm -hmm. some form of online vortex. It's interesting the number of people that I know because I've, I've been asking the same question to all of our clients. Have you watched it? Right, we're sitting down, we're going through a debrief. What does it mean? What do we feel our responsibility is? But personally, a lot of friends who have just gone through and, and hit delete across a whole bunch of their social apps. And I think, again, it's the difference from where it becomes – some of those apps are great utility. They really, they really help you. So Facebook does help you stay connected to people. There is so much good about it. YouTube does help serve up some kind of snackable content when you need it. It's all of the suggestive 
elements that come in afterwards or the hold back on what it is that you're looking for in the first instance. So the, the moment of truth for me was when Tristan said to me on LinkedIn, for example, he said, Kimberly, if you posted something and you were ser- the, the next time you came back and you were served all of the reactions that you were looking for in one go, would you keep coming back? And I said, oh, probably not. Like if my, you know, if I kind of felt like it had reached enough people, I'd probably leave it. And he said, well, that's exactly what these systems are trading on. So It's the dopamine hit every time. And Mm. so for young kids and then you apply it to young kids and you're like, okay, well, someone's taking a snap of them or, I mean, streaks on Snapchat, I I cannot wrap my head around them. They're taking photos of their eyeballs and that's a streak Mm. and it's it's a privilege to get to like thousands of streaks a day and there's not there is zero value in that Mm. content it's just insane it's just addiction for addiction's sake that's right Mm. but it's coming back to um you know the kind of the the power of the crowd and the support from the crowd Mm. with your given you've been close to tristan and social dilemma it, it does ask a really profound question about how do we intentionally want to move forward? Can we just pause, just sit down for an effing minute and say, let's stop rolling the next Netflix, you know, you finish one and then within five seconds you've got the next. Where is the space to consider what what we have done and where we are at? And it certainly paints a really dystopian view of the world and humanity right now, pandemic aside. Yeah. How do you feel about the world right now, where it's at? I'm petrified. There's so much anger there's so much frustration. There's so much civil unrest. I mean, we think we've we think we've had it tough in Victoria, and we have. We've had some civil liberties taken away, but we've still had far more civil liberty than what so many countries around the world have had. And you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, Dowder, who works at the United Nations, a couple of days ago, and he's based in New York. And I said to him, you know, what's what's the tone? How are things feeling over there? And he, he's like, well, you know, I guess everything's going to be decided in the next two weeks, you know. And so even from an Australian perspective, our natural allies are starting to erode that we've once had because the world is in absolute chaos mm. and it needs leadership more than what it has ever needed it before. And we have not got great leaders stepping forward. Oh, collaborative leadership as well. Yeah. Do, and our, do, our faith mm. in, you know, our faith, if you kind of go back to, to when the world has encountered such disruption before, we've had, we've had such strong leadership, first and foremost through the church, which has now completely decayed. Then we had strong leadership through politics and we've had some fabulous political leaders. You know, now we're looking for strong leadership through business and there's very few mm. that are stepping up. Who's and doing leadership well, do you think? Well, <laughs> the woman on everyone's lips, yeah. Jacinta. Jay, yeah. Yeah. Do you think when you talk about the absence of the church has fallen away as an institution that actually upheld values, it was a place that we understood how to be with one another, um, what being a good human was. I know the church also has had its failings. Um, and so that church-shaped whole, social media stepped in there. Well, that's right. And I mean, you now, it's, you know, the other level of um, concern, and particularly when I kind of put my humanity, when I try and line up my humanity with my communications career. um, And now what we're coming up against is all the deep fakes and all of the technology that's around there. 
Um, you know, every time I do any form of public speaking, I'm so conscious of what could someone create from it? You know, taking the sound clips of my voice and stringing together a whole bunch of things that I never I never actually said. And it catches fire and then you can and change a political yeah. switch in a moment through yeah. that going loose, even, yeah, the deep fake is... All of the integrity, all of the transparency, all of the honesty that I pride myself on my character being is not the way that it's presented externally. So I think that that is incredibly alarming. You know, you overlay a visual reference to that. On the one hand, we can start serving up communications of people that don't exist, that will never ever exist, where they will look as real as what, you know, the three of us look right now. But And so there's, there's benefit in that. We won't, you know, we'll be able to avoid things like police checks, which is a, a standard process we've got to go through from a talent perspective. But also, who do we believe mm. anymore? You know, what breaks my heart listening to this conversation is that it is drenched in fear. And if we allow the fear to take over, then someone who has your wisdom, your humility, your articulate, your insight, your compassion may not speak up. And we can't let that happen mm. because we're frightened. Mm. Well, and who, who becomes ultimately the arbitrators of our time? We've been handing that over to technology companies or you know, or, or deep fake world. And so how do we move back to where we have a world where we have a leadership that is collaborative, that, that yeah, is truly I, representative, that is deliberate? We need our leaders to rise. You know, we need our leaders to rise. We need to – but the challenge there is the choice. You need a good – you need, a, you need a good pool of mm-hmm. leaders to then be able to get behind. And I think, you know, that's what so many people um, struggle with when it does come to elections, irrespective of the country that you're in. It's kind of like, well, what, what's the bunch that I'm choosing? Dumb or dumber. Mm. Yeah. So we're talking about um, leaders doing the right thing. We're interested, Kimberly, on Human Cogs, and it's the way we end every episode, by asking the same question. Not who's just doing leadership well, but who's doing human well. My mother does human incredibly well. She's just always had so much time for people and she is the best human in my life because particularly going through this lockdown period, she was still trying to work out how to support me with baking and dropping off food and things like that. But, you know, the truth is probably the people that are doing human well are the people that we don't hear from. I think right now anyone who is waking up, sitting tall and making the very best of their day despite the circumstances that they're coming into contact with is doing human well it's tough to human at the moment being honest about that and having conversations like the one we've just had sharing your vulnerability and you know being prepared to say I'm not okay today Mm. makes you the best possible human you can be Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.